Oh, here we go. Now we're cooking with oil. Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome to show 46-ish. Woohoo! We're creeping up on 52 for the year. Yeah. But, like, we did drop three episodes in our first week. So I'm That's true. So I'm trying to decide, like, do we celebrate show 52 and call that a year? Do we go to, like, the calendar year? Ah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe from, like, when we first launched celebrate a year from that calendar year yeah that makes sense that makes sense uh so no need to update each other because we just had dinner yeah and i just spotted your bra on my yes windowsill don't forget it by the way happy birthday (laughs) thank you very much oh there's more Oh boy! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to you! I forgot to buy candles. (laughs) I'm a horrible friend. You are absolutely not a horrible friend. There's a lot in here. Oh, there's a card somewhere. I figured you would have stopped buying anything purple at this point in your life. Uh, That was leftover um, wrapping paper because I just gone. I just used all the blue for the hell. (laughs) I can't get this opened. Ah. <laughs> oh no, one of them tipped over. Oh, we have choices. Ooh. There's a caramel, and there's a meringue, and there's a caramel. Yeah, so I was going to buy you a oh. some candles, and then I <laughs> forgot. Because I got really lost. I, so you know how some Loblaws have very different layouts than others? Yeah, like unreasonably the, so. Yeah, so the one in uh, Gloucester that we just, that uh-huh. I stopped at, is vastly different to anywhere else that I've been, so I had no idea where, like, because I was looking for pads, and so I knew where the cupcakes were, but then, like, to try to find, and then I totally forgot, I got so flustered, I totally forgot about candles, and I really had to pee, so then I had to go find the bathroom. Yeah, and then we got, I got stuck in traffic, and Google, not the, (laughs) crap the bed on that. Yeah, I think Google took me on, like, (laughs) the rural cow (laughs) road trip. Yep. (laughs) Uh, whoever checked you out, though, between the pads and the cupcakes must have a real, like, narrative in their head about what your night is <laughs> at this point. Well, I think they both made very sense. I'm on my period and I bought a bunch of cupcakes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love this card. It has a picture of the queen on the front and Charles and Diana and then Idris Elba on the inside. Yeah. So very British and I, I enjoy it very yeah. much. <laughs> sexy man and then i typed out my note so you didn't have to try to read my handwriting very kind thank you (laughs) i'm like it's not impersonal if she knows i can't i know no one can read my handwriting (laughs) you have nicer ish handwriting i wasn't going to pull it out today though (laughs) not one bridge too far yeah oh yes (laughs) and to keep with my golden girl's birthday this is three years now (laughs) I got myself a Sophia Funko Pop. Yeah. She'll add a lot of sass to my office, which is what my office always needs is extra sass. Yep. <laughs> Thank you Dorothy sits on my desk. <laughs> I love it. Oh, Sophia. Um, literally the other day, I had an opportunity for a picture at Sicily moment, and I didn't take it, and I still regret it. 
I know. Picture this. <laughs> I need to do better in honoring my my Sophia's. <gasps> yeah! <laughs> the Golden Girls on DVD. Awesome, because we can't stream this in Canada. I know! This is hence why I bought you a DVD. Oh, I appreciate this very much. I know what I'm going to do tonight when I get into bed is watch the sassy ladies. <laughs> it was supposed to be, uh, I was supposed to get you one of the weed pens and then I couldn't get it in time for your birthday, so we ended up with a Golden Girls panoply of yes. <laughs> I love it. Yay. The Funko Pop Sophia is adorable. Too. I know. <laughs> It's like now uh, one of us needs to get Blanche for the other one, and so we need to like have the have other two. Full set. Yeah. Good call. Good call. Between the two of us, we need the full set. Who do you want? I think I want Blanche. Cause, okay, good. Because like, I really want Rose. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I think Blanche is more my. Uh, more your speed. <laughs> yeah. Whereas dumb, adorable Rose is really. It's a full spectrum, really, in my psyche. Yeah. Sophia on one end and Rose Nyland on the other. Well, I felt like a rose the other day, and I like I'm making it work because I knew I was the person in the room who knew nothing about what we were talking about because I'm not a researcher. I don't know all that much about research, but I still yeah. managed to like contribute something to the conversation. But I'm like, I, before I say this, I will freely admit, yeah, I do not know what we're talking about, and I'm probably the dumbest person in the room on this subject, yeah. but here's my two cents. You get at least a year of that. I'm yeah. still using that, so I'm yeah. at a year and a half, and I'm just like, full acknowledgement. But like, everybody else around that table is a researcher. Right. So I'm the only one who do, does not have some sort of degree, or a master's, or a PhD in research fields. I'm like, mm, I don't know what we're doing. Speaking of someone who has a master's in a research field and is about to start a PhD in another research field, I could guarantee you, you in that room had the most common sense. Because <laughs> you lose a certain percentage of it each time you engage in a large research project. I love to tell I've been saying it for years. The more alphabet soup you have at the end of the name. Oh, that is the very less common true. I think you we have. very much came across that yeah. at our old jobs. Like, yes, exactly. I loved some of those ladies, but... But if you ask me for our mailing address, where it is clearly in my automatic signature and easily found on Google, I'm going to have a meltdown. <laughs> As I did <laughs> at an event once when I was asked that. <laughs> Via email. <laughs> Forwarded it off to Amy. I was like, can you please deal with this? Because if I do, I'm going to get fired for what I say next. <laughs> ah. My defense, it was at the end of a conference day. Mm, true. <laughs> I was just like, mm, human interaction. Done. Smile tumors. It was the smile tumor incident, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a thing. <laughs> so thank you for my gifts. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And we'll have a... A cupcake. A wonderful cupcake. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sugar. <laughs> uh, so want to tell stories to each other? Yes. I think it's my turn to go first. Okay. Also, as birthday girl, I'm yeah. citing the privilege. <laughs> so. And, of course, Google Drive is having a... So I was doing... We were doing a PowerPoint, just a sub, so... And we're pulling all these projects together, and it's like... And the slide says diabetes. <laughs> and one of the team was like, I think it's diabetes. So I went and asked the person who did the original slide. He's like, no, it's right. And because I didn't realize it's a... It's the name of a project done in the Netherlands. Uh. 
Because I'm like, well, that's a terribly named project. I'm very diabetes of them. Or is it, like, domestic violence with diabetes as a side? Like... (laughs) But no, it's just Dutch. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yes. I was like, well, this makes so much more sense now. Yeah. It's a real Wilford Brimley-style territory. Like, where are we going with this? (laughs) Stupid me didn't actually read the slide to see, like, the Netherlands. So it was when we were doing, like, talking to the group. And I was like, yeah, and this is a a study done in the Netherlands. And I'm thinking to myself, (gasps) (laughs) I'm sure the other person who said it first, because I just was like, yeah, it must be the name of a project. Terrible name, but name of a project. I would like to recall my common sense comment. (laughs) I was not the, I was like, oh, it must be the name of, like, a terrible name for a project. But the other person was like, I think it's, like, misspelled. And so I went to double check. And they're like, no, no, that's the name of the project. It was a terrible name. Then it made sense because it's not in English. So English is not their first language. (laughs) Now you can go on. Sorry. I can't because Google Drive is having another meltdown. I was legit just in Google Drive on my iPad. And now it's installing and updating. I told you, Google is having a meltdown. This is true. Okay. So, as it is my birthday, legit the day this episode comes out. Yeah. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. I wanted to do a story about something that I love. And so I'm doing it on one of my favorite books, which is Alice in Wonderland. Because I love that book. I first read it when I was like 10. And at the time, I was so stoked that I had finished like a classic book on my own without any real concept of the fact that it is geared towards children. I was still, like, really proud of myself. So I've taken that feather out of my cap and, like, put it away and been like, no, you should be proud of other things now at this point. I think Uh, it's still an accomplishment back in the day. Thank you for humoring me. Probably not, but yeah. (laughs) So uh, it is the silliest, most readable classic book that I have ever read, and I have read and tried to read many since then that I just have not been able to crack. So I love it. And I wanted to tell you all about it because I learned stuff about it too when I was prepping this store. Have you read it? I honestly have not. Fair enough. You're going to learn a lot. And you probably already know like a lot about it just based off of like pop culture and... Yeah, like I've seen the movies based off of it, but I haven't actually read... Right. Yeah. Fair. Uh, So the problem with telling a story about a story, I realized, is that I wasn't entirely sure where to start, so this might bop around and the logic might be a little weird, but it's the same with the logic in the book itself, so... There's a lot of acid involved, I'm assuming. We'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was written by Charles Ludwig Dodgson, using the pen name of Lewis Carroll. Uh, He lived in Oxford and was friends with his neighbor's children, back when you could do that, and not have eyebrows be raised. Uh, And he was a lecturer in mathematics at Christ Church, Oxford University, and lived from 1832 to 1898. He was partially deaf and had an irrepressible stammer, and because of that, didn't do so well around other adults, which is why he had so many child friends, because they overlooked that or didn't really affect their, their relationships. So on July 4th, 1862, Carol and the Little Girls, L-I-D-D-E-L-L, Little, um, the daughters named Alice, Lorena, and Edith, along with a local canon or church person were on a boat trip along the Thames, or the Thames, which runs through Oxford. Uh, Alice got bored and begged Carol for a story with, quote, lots of nonsense in it. And 
Carol invented a story on the spot and then expanded on Alice's stories during subsequent boat trips. Alice loved the stories so much that she begged Carol to write them down for her. And so we have Alice's adventures in Wonderland. In fact, we have two novellas that make up kind of the larger book. Uh, so these two distinct novellas are um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass. And the first is better known and more interesting, I've always thought. But like the movies, they borrow from both little kind of snippets and stories to kind of build the larger stories around them. So the bits of the second one are kind of well known and they should really be considered as a complete package. So the plot of the first, so the Alice's Adventures of Wonderland, is weird. Alice sits on a river bank on a warm summer day, drowsily reading over her sister's sh shoulder, when she catches sight of a white rabbit in a waste coast running past her. The white rabbit pulls out a pocket watch, exclaims that he is late, and pops down a rabbit hole, and she follows him, ending up in a strange place full of even stranger creatures. She finds out the name of the place is Wonderland, and the entire story is her wanderings where she meets now famous characters such as the Mad Hatter, the Cheshire Cat, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the Queen of Hearts, and uh, the Caterpillar. That's, yeah, I had to search for that word. <laughs> Boy. So in the story, after meeting all these people, Alice ends up on trial after displeasing the Queen of Hearts, and the Queen orders her to be beheaded. But all of a sudden, Alice finds herself awake on her sister's lap, back on the riverbank. And she tells her sister about her dreams as they go inside for a tea. So you can see, like, a story that a little girl would like to hear about herself and her older sisters. And then with all these, like, fantastical additions of, oh, of course. talking dormice and dodo birds and all that jazz. Tweedledee and Tweedledum, is that mm -hmm. where it comes from? Yep. Yep. So those are broad strokes, I know, but it's a place to start. Uh, so... I dug in a bit more onto the background of uh, how the story kind of and the book got written and then published because it, it's also really weird and interesting. So I remember that Carol started talking about Alice in July of 1862 and he started to write down the full text on November 13th, 1862, so a few months later, and completed it on in February of the following year. So when the work was finished, Carol showed it to an author friend of his named George MacDonald, who read it to his children, and those kids went bananas for it. And it was MacDonald's who encouraged him to follow up on getting it published. As the publishing process moved forward, uh, Carol approached illustrator Sir John Tenniel, a cartoonist for the magazine Punch, to draw the illustrations, which he did, and those images became iconic. And when you think about Alice in Wonderland, yeah. you have an image in your head, and it's the Tyndall drawings of it. The book was published and available for sale for the first time on July 4, 1865, so literally three years after the first telling of the story to Alice. Uh, the first edition was to have 2,000 prints, but there were serious printing issues. Uh, the ink was bleeding and the illustrations didn't come out well, so they were called back. Some of them were sold in, in circulations, but they were called back, and the prints were donated to local children's hospitals and charities, and all but 23 copies were reclaimed in that process. So if you happen to have one of those 23 copies, you are sitting on Big Bank. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like <laughs> hella money. Yeah. Because it's a rare first edition. Yeah. It, Super rare. Yeah. The second printing was for another 2,000 books, and they were produced by a better printer, 
and were distributed as, quote, a new first edition. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Carroll wasn't the best author to work with for his publisher because he was a serious micromanager and picky about things like print quality, price, and marketing. The exact things that publishers don't want to hear about from their authors. <laughs> uh, but I'll put a caveat on that. He only cared about the books sold in England. Uh, the first editions with the poor quality was partially distributed in the States. And he had a real laissez-faire attitude about those copies and what the American versions were going to look like. So those are just across the pond colonials he couldn't care less about. But he cared about the stuff that was being sold in his name in England. Uh, much like Kanye, today, Carol just couldn't finish the project. Every new edition was a chance for him to make minor improvements or tweaks. And he did consistently and constantly. So different spellings, different additions like small additions to stories and things and creatures that she met and it was always like a work and revision like ongoing the definitive version of the book is considered to be the ninth edition which came out in 1896 and this is considered the definitive and final version because he died before edition 10 could come out she's gonna say because he died i'm yes. assuming <laughs> so if again if you have any of those one through one point a through nine yeah you're sitting on bank. You're sitting on really good. Like, kind of, yeah. Uh, Carol also wrote a simplified version of the story for children younger than five that didn't include the puns and the same level of humor. And that's really, like, you can read Alice in Wonderland as a child and two children, and it's a fun, adventurous story. But when you read it as an adult, it gets a lot richer and deeper. Like, just like kids' movies today, yeah. where you, like, watch the movies from our childhood, and you're like, holy crap, there's a lot of sex jokes in here. How did we miss this? It's the same level of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> An idea there. And it's just you don't miss it. It's just you don't get it, but it's in there just because, unlike some kids' TV shows that don't necessarily have that, the parents who are watching Paw Patrol and Peppa Pig want to kill themselves. Right. Yes. And, I mean, those aren't premiering in a location where you have to sit for two hours in the dark with your children. Like, yeah, you can turn it on and go do other stuff in your home. Whereas in a movie, if you yeah. want adults to go to the theater, you have to make it enjoyable, enjoyable like, for them, too. We watched Rapunzel or Tangled um, not that long ago. And that's the first time we'd seen it. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, it came out when we were yeah. way too old to watch Disney and neither one of us are big Disney fans. But we're both like, this is actually really funny. Tangled yes. is pretty good. Yes. Better than Frozen. Although Liz likes Frozen better. Oh. <laughs> Still haven't seen it. Don't. <laughs> well, I don't have children in my life that would put it on repeat nonstop. That's true. But the end is just frustrating. Well, that's why there's a sequel coming out. <laughs> I assume. Well, my... Well, that and the money that they're going to make. That's to do a sidetrack, but yes. But, like, the ending is fine for them, but they have this guy who's who is trying to kill the two princesses, the queen and the princess. So when they think the queen has killed the princess, they decide she has to die for treason, like the queen. Okay. But after everybody's okay and they get their happy ending, all they do to him is send him home so his big brothers can deal with him. I'm like, I am sorry. <laughs> and Dan's like, yeah, that's pretty bonkers. And I'm like... There are two people, two men in this, the end of the story, that tried to kill the queen, and all they do is just get sent away. <laughs> They're dudes. <laughs> Can we talk about the very heavy theme of murdering sisters and dying and 
treason and all like how do you how does a child watch that the parents always die like was there a disney movie someone tell me if there's a disney movie where the parents don't die at least one of them pocahontas her dad's alive but her mom i can't remember either i can't remember because she's not there she plays such a minute character character that she doesn't stand out uh, Sleeping Beauty. Oh, this chair. I think both of her parents are alive. Cinderella. But her dad's a giant tool. Cinderella's mom is dead. That's how she ends up with the stepmother. Yeah. But you said at least one. Yeah. The I said, dad's... but no. Like, who doesn't have at least have what? Like, who has both parents? That's like, what I mean. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Why this is like the... Where you want to start building drama for a children's movie, I think Disney needs to explore that a little deeper. Why Why do so many, and I know this is a side edit, we're probably going to edit this out as a bonus clip, but why do so many kids' stories start out with orphan children? Yeah. Like, yeah. I love The Secret Garden, but her parents die? True. Like, how do we? how did we not become more anxious about our parents' death? Because... Did they die, or were they just sending her home to England for no, education? No, they died. Got it. It's a book I love. Okay. I'll, it's been a while since I've read They it. died of malaria. Everybody in the house dies of malaria, and they just finally, like, soldiers come in, and they go, huh, there's this child in the middle of an empty house because it's full of dead people. Ugh. Or, like, they've been carting out bodies and didn't realize that she was unattended and, like, alive and unaffected by either malaria or cholera or whatever it was that whipped through the house. <laughs> but malaria, I'm sure. Because huh. it was India. India. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I digress, but yes, that's my, like... Uh, Although I think maybe the princess and the frog, maybe her parents were both alive. Still haven't seen that one either. Again, because it came out after I yeah. was done with Disney and I haven't caught it anywhere yet. Oh, shoot. Meredith's parents. Brave. No, okay. See, I'm... That's a good movie. I watched that with my little cousin's boys. And they were like, they started getting rambunctious at one point. I was like, you sit and you watch this. It is good imagery and good discussion of like women who can do stuff and sit and learn. Real tense about it. <laughs> oh, Angelis is scaring us. <laughs> In that situation, it, deservedly. <laughs> okay, go on with your story. Sorry. Uh, simplified version for children. Yes, okay. So, luckily for us, uh, the copyright for Alice in Wonderland expired in 1907, so the work is now in public domain, which means anyone can publish it whenever they'd like. There's no copyright. You don't have to pay the heirs of the Carroll family, like, which there are none because confirmed bachelor, but, like, there's no yeah. any more copyright on it. Which is good, because we're heavily ripping it off for the theme of this show. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, like I mentioned, there's a lot of iconic characters that have come from this work. Obviously, Alice is the titular character. She's the seven-year-old protagonist of the story and believes that the world is orderly and stable. Uh, and she has an insatiable curiosity about her surroundings, which is challenged uh, and frustrates her when she's in Wonderland. Um, so there's a bit of a kind of even nowadays when people are like really like rose-colored glasses we might refer to them as the Alice of the group type of thing like you need to wake up to the realities of what's happening around you 
Uh, Alice is polite and well-raised and interested in others, although she sometimes makes the wrong remarks and upsets the creatures she meets. Uh, she's easily put off by abruptness and rudeness in others. So in the book, Alice kind of mirrors the expectation for children versus the reality of the adult world that they're in and um, gives the examples of what can happen when you're too rigid or too loose with what you're saying or doing. The White Rabbit, a fan of ours, and mm -hmm. we of him, obviously. We've named the show in his honor. He is frantic, <laughs> again, much like myself, uh, and harried, so constantly moving, <laughs> much like Andy. <laughs> Uh, he originally leads and Alice. And late for everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You like are the white rabbit. I am. You get your pair of gloves and a little pocket watch. <laughs> um, the white rabbit is a figure of importance uh, in the story because he is the initiating character that leads Alice into Wonderland. But he is manic and timid and occasionally aggressive. So I think between us, we can hit two out of three of those with the yeah. manic and occasionally aggressive, but neither of us are timid. No. No. Because Alice follows him, he's the plot character or the plot device that gets things moving whenever he appears in the story. Uh, and in a way, he's some kind of a guide through Wonderland, but only unintentionally. Dean Little, Alice's father, so the little girl Alice uh, that Carol was telling the story to, might have been the inspiration for the White Rabbit because he was always running late. And there's this long story online on the website I was looking at, and it all had to do with, like, there was no west-facing door of his church, so he had to go around, but to go around, he had to go through, like, a bunch of different blocks and, like, was always running late for service at the church that he was the dean of. So. <laughs> I was like, I feel you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Cheshire Cat, who happens to be my favorite um, character, and I should have brought him in, but I legit have a stuffed Cheshire, Cheshire Cat that's like cat size like life size and i love it so very much uh he's perpetually grinning cat who appears and disappears at will he displays a detached clear-headed logic and explains wonderland's madness to alice it's the only it he is the only character in wonderland who actually listens to alice so everyone else is just constantly going about their business but the cheshire cat will stop and listen and talk to alice and point out kind of the logic of the space that she's in uh, with his remarks, he will he teaches her the rules of Wonderland and gives her insight on how things work. It's not 100% clear why Carol named the character the Cheshire Cat, uh, but to grin like a Cheshire Cat was a common phrase in Carol's day, though its origin was unknown, but may have come from a sign painter in Cheshire who painted grinning lions on signboards for inns in the area. Or... If you take a good look at the Alice window in Christ Church, Oxford, you can see three grinning animals on the top of the little family arms. So that might have been the inspiration for it. And also at one time, Cheshire cheese were molded into the shapes of grinning cats. So there's a lot of instances of where it could have been. Yeah. I think some of those instances probably fed each other at some point. Like the grinning like a Cheshire cat is probably a result of the cheese, the little family crest might be how we attach that to yeah anyway um to me the cheshire cat is the resident a-hole and that's why i love him so very much i was gonna say he's a bit of a yeah a bit of a d-bag yeah <laughs> but in like an adorable way in a way that all cats are yes exactly so i'll give it to him uh, the Queen of Hearts is the ruler of Wonderland. She's severe and domineering and continually screaming for her subjects to be beheaded, those, 
though those orders seem to never be carried out. Uh, she is violent and authoritative and dominant. And so the question is, did Carol, the confirmed bachelor who probably didn't have a lot of luck with women, mm. see that as the female authority figure, like as a stand in for other women in his life or in his world? So where did this character come from? Is it the Queen Victoria of it, like, because she would have been near the end of her life and became an increasingly severe figure as that time progressed. Like, where where did this mm, yeah. come from? Or was his mother kind of right. like a very severe person? If you had a stammer as a child back then, he probably didn't get yeah. treatment in any kind way, so maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, the queen likes to play croquet with live flamingos and hedgehogs as mallets and balls. But sh when she wins, she wins by her own rules. Uh, she's feared all over Wonderland by the inhabitants because of her lack of patience and explosive character. And she's mirrored by the king of hearts, who is just a weak-willed, always yes dear, no dear, like bowing down to her type of thing. And Carol said the following about this character, quote, I picture to myself the Queen of Hearts as a sort of embodiment of ungovernable passion, a blind and aimless fury, capital F fury. So if you remember the Roman mythology story, there were the furies who yeah. would hunt you down to the ends of the earth if you did something wrong. So that's where Carol was coming from when he created this female character. Not great. <laughs> uh, the Mad Hatter probably, if not the most famous after Alice, then pretty close. Uh, he's a Thank you, Johnny Depp, for ruining that yeah, for the rest of the world. Big time. A small, impolite hatter who lives in a perpetual tea time, which you, as you do I, for, so yeah. I'm damn for that. Uh, he thoroughly enjoys frustrating Alice. Although everyone calls him now the Mad Hatter, Lewis Carroll never actually called him that in the story, and he's referred to just as the Hatter. Hmm. So the addition of Mad was a a reader's edition, if you will. The phrase mad as a hatter was common in Carol's time, uh, and it originates to the fact that hatters usually did go mad because of the mercury they sometimes used in their hat making process. We give them mercury poisoning and nobody ends well with that. <laughs> That's how originally mirrors were made too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum actually appear in the second book, so the Through the Looking Glass. They're brothers who are in conflict, but also very childlike and eager to show off their knowledge to Alice. So they're very much like Alice, but I think they're the... Whereas girls have the reputation of being a little bit calmer and easily to govern when boys are just... Wild. Bashing at each other and will make anything out of a gun or a stick to hit each other, that type of thing. So I think they're that... tend to do that. And finally, we have the Caterpillar. Uh, he sits on a mushroom, smokes a hookah, and treats Alice with contempt. He directs Alice to take a magic mushroom that allows her to shrink and grow. Just like the Cheshire Cat, he teaches Alice how to cope with um, Wonderland, specifically the difficulties she's encountering. And by changing sizes, he's it's kind of the stand-in for how to adapt to the environment that you're in, right? Like, up and yeah. down. Because the caterpillar is smoking a hookah and advises Alice to eat a mushroom, he is the main reason why many people think the story of Alice is uh, about drug use, containing hidden stories about drug use, uh, or that the author was on drugs while writing the book. But there's really no, mm. there's really no justification to that. 
I think yeah, the song that came out in the 60s about the White Rabbit is where Jefferson that, Airplane. Jefferson Airplane is where that started. One bill makes you larger. Yeah, exactly. One bill <laughs> makes you small. Uh, but yes, and I'll talk more about that drug theory a little bit later in another point that I have. So those are the main characters. The contained book Alice Through the Looking Glass has two poems in it which are wildly famous in their own right. Um, and so a lot of people know that this is Carol and will attribute it to the Alice. I think there's a sense that it comes in the first half of the Alice in Wonderland, but they're both actually in the, the back half, the second novella, the Through the Looking Glass. And the first is the, is the Jabberwock. And no? I don't know if I, I probably will know it when she's probably. talking about it. And I'll have it and I'll read it. Um, but I also encourage you to Google the Jabberwock and Benedict Cumberbatch because he reads it in a way that only Benedict Cumberbatch can like deliver this. And it is, it's a bonkers poem. So because I love it, I'm going to read all of it. And you're just going to have to get over that if you're now bored. Too bad for you. So the Jabberwock. <clears throat> Are you channeling your uh, Benedict? My inner, my inner hatter. "'Twas brillig in the slivy toes, did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borough groves, and the momraths outgabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird, and shun, the furious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the max mom foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as an uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the tugly wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through, the vorpal blade did snicker-snack. He left it dead, with its head, he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O fracious day, kalu-kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig in the slivy toves, did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borough groves, and the moan rafts out gabe. This is a device in poetry where you just make up a bunch of words, and what's really important is the cadence. And you can kind of imagine what the story it's telling is, but like everyone's imagining is a little bit different. So it's basically a father sends his son off to kill a jabberwock or dragon-like creature, and he does, and he comes back and celebrates it with him. The thing with the poem, though, is that it added words to the English language, like chortled. This is where chortled originates. Like, you could trace the etymology back to this. If you are a fan of The Simpsons, there's one episode, I think, where Mr. Burns is... He's, like, dating a woman for the first and only time, I think, of the entire series. And this is ages ago, because I haven't watched The Simpsons in forever. But at the start of the episode, when, like, this woman first wants to date him, he is exclaims, oh, fraptious day. And then, like, they don't come back to it. And then at the end of the episode, something else good happens, and he says, oh, Kalu Kale. So it's a clear, like, reference to the Jabber, like, it's yeah. a direct line, but, like, just the way they dropped it in was so subtle that I, like, lost my shit when I heard that. <laughs> um, so the that's the Jabberwock. The other really famous work or poem from this book, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's very long, is The Walrus and the Carpenter. That one I do know. Because you're a Kevin Smith fan. Yeah. So it has one very famous stanza that gets used a lot um, in, like, graduations and card writing. And that is the following. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. So the 
walrus is and the carpenter are attempting a bunch of oysters to get out of their bed and to come with them with the intention of eating them and part of that tempting is to tell them like we're going to talk about all this fun cool stuff so you should probably come with us and if you're a kevin smith fan you understand that that's jesus and buddha like tempting the people of the world to follow along behind them to devour them so <clears throat> these two poems are out there in the lexicon and they're very well known but i don't think a lot of people would attribute them to this book yeah probably not and not and especially not to the second novella most yeah. people think it's just alice in wonderland but it's through the looking glass so because this book has been around for so long and is so popular and was written in a different era, there are a lot of misconceptions and legends about the work. One of them was that Carol was on drugs or that the book is about drugs. But the um, people who study uh, Carol and his works don't think that's the case. The language, the logic and the puns that are in the book are too complex to be attributed to someone who was on drugs. Like, it's, it's a deep, thick book, and you just can't do that if you're tripping on opium. <laughs> like, it's just True. not going to happen. Uh, analysis shows that his writing style was consistent from his youth. So there's no sudden break um, with what he wrote as um, a child or as a, a young man. He never mentions drugs in his extensive diaries. And so, again, another diarist, like we talked about in the past, except for the one time where he took laudanum for a toothache. So if he's going to mention it once for medicinal purposes, like he would have mentioned it otherwise. And the presence of the hookah smoking caterpillar, which I said is why a lot of people think it's about drugs, was likely social commentary about Victorian drug consumption of the time, uh, whereas you could like go get cocaine tablets for your toothache or for your children's cough like at the local druggist that is true uh and it wasn't actually in the original manuscript so this is one of those kanye moments where he was constantly editing mm. and he added it later when the book was about to be published for the first it's time. not even for me it was never the hookah smoking it was the shroom right and like i get that you know growing up especially in, in my high school pot and shrooms were big right easily accessible grow wild Harvest time was always very popular for people. Yeah. Um, so it was just that sort of, you know, mushroom that makes you makes think you you're big, big. Yeah. And <laughs> makes you feel small. But for all the readings that I've done about drug consumption in that era, it's I don't laudanum know if, and opium and yeah. cocaine. And, I don't know if mushrooms ever did it. So yeah. I think it's something we associate now. Yeah. But it also seems to be a strange... Coincidence. Coincidence that... Yeah. It's a shroom that makes her feel big or small. True. <laughs> just one of those lovely yeah. little coincidences that the world lined up. But we also just look at a lot of children's stuff and think to ourselves, you had to be on drugs to write this. Yeah, that's fair. Like, who came up with... You cannot tell me that people were not drunk or stoned when they came up with things like the Teletubbies. Or, like, you had to be, right? Like, and I think there's that, that sort of... Bernstein Bears... Bear in a hat and overalls. Come on. Or like Donald Duck, who wears a shirt but no pants. We call that Winnie the Poohing. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> like... <laughs> right, because they need to wear the clothes to be human enough, but pants is one step too far. <laughs> yeah. But when they get out of the shower, they have a towel around their waist right. and not their just like... not the nips. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> Uh, another rumor about this book is that it is banned in China, 
This rumor started in the 30s, thanks to an article that appeared in the New York Times, where a contributor claimed that the book was banned because it was, quote, degrading for human beings to converse with animals. So, height of communism uh, would have been in play. There is an article from 1930s uh, where an official in the Hunan, Hunan province claimed primary school textbooks were not conforming to communist standards. He found it absurd that animals were being transformed into human language speaking creatures and were given respectful forms of address. He said, quote, school textbooks that are inadequately difficult or those whose theories are simplistic but impractical must be destroyed by fire. So this was just one guy's opinion. It wasn't official policy, but taken with the paper of record reporting on it, it became the rumor that it was banned in China. This story is beloved by fans. Like, I'm a ride-or-die Alice fan, no doubt. Uh, The original manuscript of Alice's Adventures Underground, which was the original title of the work, were sold for the first time by Sotheby's in 1928, The popular but possibly untrue story surrounding that sale is that Alice Little Hargreaves, as her married name was, was then an almost 70-year-old widow, needed the money, and so approached Sotheby's about selling the manuscript for her. So it is known that the little girls were in connection with Carol until a certain point in their life, so it's possible that she did have one of these recalled original prints. The book went up on the block and it was sold to an American book dealer for 77,000 pounds adjusted for today's. Like, that's in today's dollars, okay. 77,000. He offered to sell the work to the British Museum for cost, but the museum couldn't raise the funds to buy it off of him. Like, he wasn't looking to make a profit. He yeah. recognized it's a yeah. classic British story. It should probably stay, but the funds just couldn't get there. So it traded hands in America a couple of times, but was eventually donated to the British Museum by a consortium of American businessmen who pooled together to buy it, and is currently on permanent display in the museum. Cool. And yes, I have seen the original. It makes me very happy. (laughs) Because it's public domain, it could be published by whomever, wherever, and so to date has been translated into more than 174 languages. As of 2015, 7,609 known published editions have existed, and that number increases every year. So, what makes the story such a fan favorite? Originally, critics and readers alike found the book to be sheer nonsense, and one critic even said that the book was, quote, too extravagantly absurd to produce more diversion than disappointment and irritation. So on the surface, yeah, it's absolutely ludicrous and can be hard to digest, but... Why I love it is the combination of sophisticated logic, social satire, and pure fantasy that once you appreciate it for what it is, is enjoyed by all levels of readers. Either the kids love the fantasy of it and the talking animals, or the adults love the insanity of the background. This book has created a massive industry and inspired a lot of different people over time. According to Wikipedia, there have been 35 film or TV adaptations of the story, beginning as early as 1903 with a British silent film. The most well-known adaptations, however, are the 1951 Disney animated film, which is my favorite Disney film, by the way, probably no surprise, and the recent Tim Burton films. Not a fan, BT Dubs. It's even before Johnny Depp became... I think that was the slide. That was the the start of the... It's just like... I think it came to the point for that where it's like, he's the same character as he was in Willy Wonka. He's the same character as he was. He just... Pirates. Pirates. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this... 
yeah. over the top. Just that sort of like very, like I like Tim Burton. I generally like his stuff. Yeah. But it just got to like cast different people, man. Cast different people. Maybe yeah. some different facial expressions. And it's now, you know, Johnny Depp is a parody of himself almost. Like he's a parody of yeah. of um, Rolling Stones, um, Keith Richards. Yes. Right? And it's this mix between his his Hunter S. Thompson, Thompson uh, Fear and Loathing, and uh, Jack Sparrow. I honestly can't think of the last movie that Johnny Depp was in where he played, like, a regular human and not, like, one of these extreme characters. Chocolat? That's a long time ago. Donnie Brasco? Which one was last? Oh, he did have that one with Angelina Jolie. The Tourist. Oh, yeah. That was terrible. That, like, nobody saw, which is why nobody remembers it. Yeah. Yeah. But apparently they hate each other. <laughs> Which, like... if you spent a lot of time around him, would you think you would be a yeah. fan at the end of that shoot? Apparently it was not good kissing him. Like he... mm. I wouldn't go anywhere near that mm. without a disinfectant bath on his end first. There'd be a lot of dental dams, even just for kissing. Mm. Like... Yeah. Can't be a bat. Uh, also... Or dose him in oregano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, um, Burton went through and invented a lot of canon for this story, which, I mean... It's just, it's sacrilege. Like, you don't mess with it. So he gave, like, the White Rabbit name. The White Rabbit isn't named in the book. He gave all the characters who didn't have names names. So the Mad Hatter had a name. and It just wasn't, it wasn't good. And then the most ludicrous and ridiculous thing to happen was after Wonderland, when the Alice character, like, just goes off and is, like, a traitor in China afterwards. Like, a young woman could ever and would ever do that. Like, think it through. That was the most ludicrous part of that movie to me. I didn't see it. <sighs> of course I did, because I love it. And I figured sure. it would be good. It was not. And it sticks to the 1951 version, quite frankly. Many authors, as early as 1895, were inspired to tell their own Alice-based stories or to parody Carol's work. Uh, and this ranges from kids' books to comic books to retellings like the recent Alice's Adventures in Zombieland which I have and I have read and it's funny and good. It came out around that whole time of like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies where Quirk Publishing was doing a bunch of these like yeah. updates and retellings with like... Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Yeah, Vampire, Vampire Slayer. Vampire Slayer. There was one, Anna Karenina was Anna Android. Like, yeah. there's a bunch of these books. Uh, allusions to Alice get dropped into writings all the time. Finnegan's Wake from 1939 by James Joyce is famously influenced by Alice. The novel is about a dream and includes such lines as Alicious, train stream, trains, trains through alluring glass or alas in Jumbo Land. Uh, from what I know about Finnegan's Wake is you have to be really dedicated and forced to read it because it's a brick and nobody... I've never... I don't yeah. think I've ever read anything... I, 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 I love reading, but... My attempt at reading classics is just not there. Yeah. Like... And this one is not where you would want to start. <laughs> even, like, if you look at, like, most top 100 books, yeah. the ones that I have read off that, I hate so much that I never want to try any of them. It's <laughs> like, granted, I didn't read um, 100 Years of Solitude, but I read Love in the Time of Cholera, and right. I finished it, but it was... A slog. Oh, I wanted to poke my eyes out. So I can't imagine reading anything else by that author. Yeah. It's different if, like, you're like, well, I don't love um, Maeve Binchy's later stuff as much as I love her first stuff. Right. But it's still not, like, painful to read. Yeah. 
Although, Anne Rice, I'm looking at you because some of your stuff is painful to read. Uh, there have been various plays and musicals based off Alice in Wonderland, various pieces of art, like Salvador Dali was inspired to do 12 illustrations based off the books. All Saints Church in Darsbury has several stained glass windows above the story, and there is the famous sculpture in New York Central Park of the Mad Hatter, Alice and the White Rabbit, at mm-hmm. tea. Um, music. You mentioned Jefferson Airplane's song, The White Rabbit, from their 1967 album, Surrealistic Pillow, which mentions Alice, the Dormouse, the hookah-smoking caterpillar, the White Knight, and the Red Queen. It was written by Grace Slick, and it shows parallels between the story and the hallucinatory effects of psychedelic drugs. The Walrus and the Carpenter inspired John Lennon to write, I am the Walrus, cuckoo-cuchoo. Uh, and Aerosmith's 2001 album, Just Push Play, the song Sunshine talks about Alice and other characters of the book. And in the music video, Steven Tyler is shown trying to protect a young blonde Alice in the woods, along with depictions of the Red Queen, the White Rabbit, among others. And interestingly enough, and I think this is going to be the start of another rabbit hole for me further down, there is a medical condition called Alice in Wonderland Syndrome. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. you're going to have to do that one. Episodes usually include micropesia, in which objects appear small, or macropesia, which when objects appear large. So some sufferers perceive their own body parts to be larger or smaller than they really are. Dr. John Todd, a British psychiatrist, gave the disorder its name in a 1955 paper, noting that the misperceptions resembled Lewis Car- Carroll's description of what happened to Alice, and it's also known as Todd's syndrome. Possible triggers include infections, migraines, stress, and drugs, particularly some cough medicines. Give it to you. Uh, It's most common to occur in children, and then you just grow out of it as an adult. Um, And so I've got a list of, like, neurological conditions on my phone for, like, to dig into in the future. And there was a really interesting New York Times piece on it, so I'm going to go back and do that. And then, of course, there's this podcast, And when we were starting this podcast, I ran a search for podcasts with rabbit holes or white rabbit in the title to make sure we weren't going to be stepping on anyone's toes. And there was at least a half dozen that popped up and there's been two or three more since we've started. So this is a thing. Yeah. Oh, uh, down the rabbit hole is part of our wild saying. Like I hear it at least once a week on the podcast I listen to, like somebody somewhere is talking about weird rabbit holes that they go down. So... So that's a lot of information about one of my favorite books. I love how ridiculous it is. I love its charm and I love its flow and pacing. I love the 1951 Disney movie. It's my favorite Disney movie of all times for this reason. And I strongly encourage everyone to go read this book because it is the bomb diggity. The end. (laughs) Uh, So I have a... It's not a similar, but it's a similar format. Ooh. I uh, love when we do this. Yeah, and it's totally... It makes naming so much easier for the episode. <laughs> so this week's story uh, sparked by from me for, by the 2019 Tony Awards, which okay. happened at the begin, uh, which happened on June 3rd. But because my life is crazy, it took me like three, fin- three weeks to finish watching it. <laughs> like I knew who won. So it's, it's, I didn't watch for the awards. I watched for the performances. You are dedicated in a way that I don't think anyone else could ever be. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's different than like the Oscars where you're really watching to see who wins. For the Tonys, you're watching to see who wins, but you're also watching for the performances, okay. right? Because if you haven't seen these musicals, this is a really good way to get a sense of what each musical is like. Um... So yeah, I, I watch for the musical pieces, and I usually fast forward the speeches because 
I can only listen to somebody thank their parents so many often. But it's different. Like, I didn't write this in there. The last year and two years ago, for the last two years, they've the Tonys have gotten a lot of flack because they've been very political. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're an awards program. Just accept your award. I'm like, the Tonys are put on by the American Wing, yeah. which was started by suffragettes. Yeah. So these people have a huge history of political yeah. activism. It's not like this is the Oscars again, yeah. where really that doesn't have a ton of. This was started by suffragettes, people. <laughs> you're, you're not getting away from no. politics. And it's also a diverse, a much diverser historically, you know, when. Yeah, yeah and when I. So when I did the playwrights mm-hmm. for when we were doing our Women, His, Women History Month, then when I was in New York. A lot of the, there was a lot of, the three plays that I went to, a lot of female producers, female directors, I'll talk about, uh, you know, people of color, and they were almost all linked. A lot of them were uh, the same ones that had, they had worked on Raisin in the Sun, they had worked on various Mm -hmm. other forums. So it's like, women are always very prominent in the theater, Uh, people of color, people from different backgrounds, you know, um, gay people, that's been very big. Yeah. You know, Neil Patrick Harris, the best Tony host ever, <laughs> did the opening um, uh, number, I think the last, maybe the last year he hosted. It was called uh, Broadway Isn't Just for Gays and Jews Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Only he could get away with saying that. Exactly. <laughs> um, you should YouTube, if you've never seen Neil Patrick Harris, Tony pieces they're all amazing um one year lin-manuel miranda wrote the songs and so they actually at the end he had a song that lin was writing downstairs while the awards so they included something from every winning play and musical so in the end he had to cram this song into like two minutes so he's like neil patrick harris had they had written it they had memorized it and he went out and performed it and it is (laughs) amazing they actually won um an emmy for that that year the following year for their how like, could you not? Yeah, it was it was really good. There's there's when you watch the the opening number for that one, you could definitely I could definitely tell like it was the Lin Lin Manuel Miranda year because right. it has that sort of same um, almost flow to his some of his songs that he has. But anyways, so this has nothing to do with Lin Manuel Miranda because he's <laughs> like amazing, but uh, he's been doing things like Mary Poppins, and stuff, right? And they're producing in the Heights. Mm. That's becoming a musical movie. Uh-huh. Uh, should be released next year, which was really good. Um, so I enjoyed theater as a teenager, thanks to drama classes and competitions at school. But the 1997 Tony Awards opening number of Rent from Rent started my like love of theater and musical theater that lasts to this day because I'm a huge theater nerd. Um, at that time, musicals to me was Andrew Lloyd Webber. It was Cats. It was yeah. Phantom. It was Avida. Les Mis. Yeah. Les Mis, um, which I wasn't really into, although I do like Les Mis. Uh, I'm, I've got tickets to see Cats when it comes here, and I'm like, huh, because we have tickets to see the whole season, because that's right. how I ended up having to get Hamilton tickets, and uh, I really wanted tickets to see Hamilton and yeah. the revival of Rent. Hey, who are you taking to see with you in Hamilton? Dan, because he bought me the tickets. Cats. Sorry. He shelled out the money and bought them for me for Mother's Day. Or no, for our anniversary. I might have to dig a pit outside your home. <laughs> um, so Rent was different. It was groundbreaking. And the 90s teen me loved it. Um, and I'll let everybody know how well it holds up. Because they're doing 
a revival of it touring coming yeah. through. So, um, but I'm not going to talk about Rent. What I want to talk about is Hades Town, uh, which is the soundtrack that's currently my obsession. Okay. Um, this is a new musical that is the brainchild of singer-songwriter Annis Michelle, mm-hmm. who described this as a DIY theater project in 2006 with the stage productions in Vermont, then a concept album in 2010. Now, the concept album is really interesting because she has some pretty big names, So, who uh, plays Persephone on the concept album okay. uh, is Annie DeFranco. Oh, and she has some other pretty big names on it, too. She's a folk, sort of in that same realm. Um, in 2012, she went looking for a director to help stage shape the project and sought out Rachel uh, Chavkins from after watching a production of Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812, which uh, Rachel had been directing. Okay. So they started working together to transition this from a concept album to a stage musical, and this collaboration resulted in 15 new songs and added dialogue. The added pieces addressed the storyline gaps. And in 2016, Town premiered the New York Theatre Workshop for an initial run. An initial run was just a couple of months, but it was actually extended three weeks because it was really popular. So that's always a good sign yeah. when you get a workshop extension runs. So if you don't know anything about musicals, musicals normally take about 10 years to create so when, going back to Lin-Manuel Miranda, when he did In the Heights and brought out Hamilton, it was under 10 years. Like, even Andrew Lloyd Webber, it takes him about 10 years to get, go from concept. And Lin did it in seven. So that is, like... Explains why Spider-Man the musical failed so spectacularly. Yeah. <laughs> it takes about 10 years, usually. Like, so she started this in 2016, 2016, and then 2016 she was doing her theater workshops then they usually do a couple of workshops and they do off-broadway trials they're sort of tweaking it sort of like your carol right between editions most musicals will workshop a few times in different places and the creators will make small changes after each run hades town was no different on top of the new york theater workshop it presented an intended pre-broadway run as part of the 1718 season in edmonton hmm because that's just Edmonton was such a big market. <laughs> I didn't think it was either. Uh, and then uh, ahead of the 2019 Broadway transfer, they performed at the uh, Olivier Theatre at the National Theatre in London. Making its UK debut, it ran from November the 2nd, 2018 to January 26, 2019. And then came what all playwrights and lyricists want is the Broadway debut. Hadestown opened on Broadway at the Walter Kerr Theater, and previews begin in March 22nd of 2019, and the opening night was set for April 17th, 2019. And it also made a bunch of people's dreams come true when it won eight Tony Awards, including top prize of Best Musical this year. Hmm. It also won Best Director, won Best Song, Best Book, Best Book, yes. Uh, So both the creator and the director won on top of their general win. Uh, So I know you're thinking, that's great, but what is it about? A name like Katie's Town. There's a lot of ways I'm going with this. (laughs) So uh, I'm just kidding that. And you may have guessed it's based on the Greek myth. And it's... Oh, that's what I was thinking, but not expecting. Yep. And it is described as a contemporary twist on an ancient myth 
inspired by classic American folk music and vintage New Orleans jazz. It tells the story of Orpheus's mythical quest to conquer Hades to regain the favor of his one true love, Eurydice. Hades' story pits nature against industry, faith against doubt, and love against death. Um, and it has like a really big feel to it and a really topical feel. They have a song in there that's called Why We Build the Wall. Despite this being an original song from 2006, 2010, right. so this was in the original and on the original album in 2010, the concept album, it feels so topical right now because actually the lyrics around it are, they build a wall to keep out poverty and poverty is the enemy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so even though that was written in 2016, you think it's like written for right now, but it's yeah. really not. It was original. Um, so the story of Orpheus and Eurydice came, comes from the ancient legend of dead and dead and has a few versions. So I'm going to tell you the general story. This is not the story of the musical that you should check it yourself, but this is the original general myth. Okay. There's a bunch of versions of it though. So yeah. Virgil, Ovid, 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 Ovid and Plato all have versions of this story. Um, but here's a general version. Apollo gives his son Orpheus a lyre and teaches him how to play. Orpheus plays with such perfection that even Apollo was surprised. And it is said that nothing could resist his beautiful melodies, neither enemies nor beasts. Even trees and rocks were enchanted by his music. Orpheus fell in love with Eurydice, a woman of unique beauty and grace, whom he married and lived happily with for a short time. However, when Hymen was called to bless the marriage, he predicted that their, per their perfection was not meant to last. A short time after this ominous prophecy, Eurydice was wandering in the forest with nymphs. As in, you do. As you do. In some versions of the story, a shepherd then saw her, was beguiled by her beauty, and made advances toward her, and began to chase her. Other versions of the stories relate that Eurydice was merely dancing with the nymphs. As you do. In any case, while fleeing or dancing, she was bitten by a snake and died instantly. Orpheus sang his grief with his lyre and, may, and managed to move everything, living or not, in the world. Both human and gods were deeply touched by his sorrow and grief. At some point, Orpheus decided to descend to Hades to see his wife. Ovid's version of the myth does not explain this decision, while other versions relate that gods and nymphs, or Apollo himself, suggested that he make the journey. Any other mortal would have died, but Orpheus was protected by the gods, went to Hades, and arrived at the infamous realm passing by ghosts and souls of people unknown. He managed to charm Cer Cerebus? Yep, Cerebus. Three-headed dog. Orpheus presented himself at the front of the god of the underworld, Hades, and his wife, Persephone, which I've always... Persephone? Yeah. <laughs> Tell this musical, I was like, that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Or Persephone. Yeah. Uh, Orpheus played his lyre, melting even Hades' heart. Hades told or Orpheus that he could take Eurydice with him under one condition. Eurydice would follow him while walking out to the light from the caves of the underworld, but he should not look back at her before coming out into the light or else he would lose her forever. If Orpheus was patient... He would have Eurydice as a normal woman again by his side. Thinking it a simple task for a patient man such as himself, Orpheus was delighted. He thanked the gods and left to descend back into the world. As you do. 
<laughs> Unable to hear Eurydice's footsteps, however, he began fearing that the gods had fooled him. Eurydice was in fact beside him, but as a shade, having to come back into the light to become a full woman again. So she's basically a ghost. Mm -hmm. Only a few feet away from the exit, Orpheus lost his faith and turned to see Eurydice behind him. But her shadow was whisked back amongst the dead, now trapped in Hades forever. Orpheus tried to return to the underworld, but a man cannot enter the realm of Hades twice while alive. According to various versions of the myth, Orpheus started playing a mourning song with his lyre, calling for death so that he, so that he could be reunited with Eurydice forever. Orpheus was ultimately killed either by beasts tearing him apart or by the maids in a frenzied mood. According to another version, Zeus decided to strike him with lightning, knowing Orpheus would reveal the secrets of the underworld to humans. In any case, Orpheus died, but the muses decided to save his head and keep it amongst the living people to sing forever, enchanting everyone with his lovely melodies and tones. As you do. As you do. <laughs> Let's just keep his head on a spike. I mean, Futurama was just catching up with the ancient Greeks. Apparently. <laughs> Now, those Greeks knew how to tell an upbeat story. Oh, they do. Oh, Don't they? For sure, yeah. Uh, and I would like to add that Pluto's version, Orpheus was not a hero, but a coward because he was not willing to die for his love originally. I mean, he, Plato got it right. The man braved going to hell! <laughs> so Hades Town is not the only time that this myth has been used as a foundation for art. Sort of like Alice, there's like tons and tons and tons and tons retellings. of retellings of this story. The comic book, the comic series, The Sandman, the songs of or Orpheus by Neil Gaiman mm -hmm. is one. Don't Look Back, which is an Atari VCS style flash video game by Terry Cavanaugh. Wow. That was shockingly shockingly released in 2009, but it really has that, like, original Atari, Atari look. I don't know why that's popular. Uh, Poussin painted a landscape with Eurydice's, Ophius and Eurydice's in the early 1650s. Reflector, the 2013 album by uh, Arcade Fire, contains a narrative arc based on the story. And the cover art is a picture of... Augustus Rodin's sculpture of Eurydice and Orpheus. And they also have six, at least six operas that I could find based on this story. Um, it's got everything an opera needs. That is true. Lots of drama, lots of heartbreak, loss of faith. I mean, it's right up that alley. Death. Death. Now, in the musical Hades Town, uh, she doesn't die, she decides to, she willingly goes. Oh. Um, and it's set in this sort of Great Depression po post-apocalyptic world. So it actually has this really interesting tone to it. Like they won a lot of lighting costume set design because of the look of it. But cool. Definitely. Uh, I think on YouTube you can find the Hades Town performance from um, the Tony Awards. Cool. And the song that I'm obsessed with, which is Wait For Me. Mm -mm. Uh, in grade 10 English class, we did a unit on Greek mythology, and my group had to do um, like a little puppet play of that story. <laughs> and I remember nothing of it except for at one point, my line was, Oh, Zeus, you big burly man, you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, 
like did you, I don't know. Were you playing Fran Dresser as like a fate or something? I threw a lot of Dutch on it. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I mean, like, why a grade ten class had a unit on Greek mythology? I I don't know. So I think the whole thing was just a little ludicrous, and that that does sound of... a lot more interesting than most of the stuff I did in grade ten. To be fair, yeah. That Although you're... if they if they had brought that in more in grade six, I would have been really into it because I was really going through my like that like that's a like a, an engaging thing to like get children yeah. but like that year we also read um twelfth night and the joy luck club and well that's a mixed bag of tricks right there i want to say a man for all seasons it was it was all over the place wow <laughs> grade 10 we did death on the ice and a play we must have done another book but we did uh, a play a short play but it was on the um the murder of John Lennon, which actually was okay. really more interesting than like if we'd done Death of a Salesman, or... Death of a Salesman, or Shakespeare, because there's nobody in that room other than me that was getting through Shakespeare. Oh, it's... I mean, a couple of other people maybe, but like there was. It's the hardest part of my tutoring job every year when I have to do it. Like most, like there's a bunch of guys who are technically in grade twelve still in this course. So every year I have to tutor through a Shakespeare thing the parent always comes to me and says oh look i found this copy of the play on one page it has the original shakespearean language on the other has modern english so this will help right and i always say no take that book away from your child because they're not going to learn how to read shakespearean english and it's going to come up for the next two three years yeah so you're just you're hamstringing them like they have to learn the cadence of it yeah and then they say well why does beyond like high school why does he have to know that and I can't give them a reason because there's literally no reason why yep. you have to read Shakespeare beyond high school. <laughs> now, Victoria Elizabeth found my copy of the complete works of Shakespeare, like, which is a Did giant. she hurt herself? She carried it upstairs, which <laughs> I was surprised because that thing is heavy. And yeah. then she was like pretending to read it. Yeah. I'm not going to say that my child read Shakespeare because I'm not pretentious. Yep. Because she didn't, because the book was upside down. I would also call BS on you, like, so fast. Exactly. I could barely <laughs> read Shakespeare, and I like Shakespeare. But it sticks with you. Like, I yeah. I will read the plays now that I have to tutor, and, like, I can read them sitting in, like, yeah. one sitting, and I get through it, and I can pick up what I need to pick up to do the tutoring. But then, like, when I had to do Merchant of Venice, you have to sit down and explain, like, the whole, like, here is why people have hated Jews for the last 2,000 years. It's the concept of usury. And what's usury? And then I have to explain medieval, like, economies to people. And I'm just like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> Could we stop? Like, beyond the fact that Shakespeare is the name Shakespeare, I cannot understand why it is still so perennially popular. Like, I like a few of his plays. Like, I have a soft spot for Romeo and Juliet just because of... <laughs> My age and Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Dane. <laughs> but, like, really, my favorites are A Much Ado About Nothing and A Comedy of Errors. But, like, yeah, there's just, there's so many better, more modern, more current things that people can and should be reading if you're forced oh, to being reading anything. I agree. If you're going to be reading plays, there are better plays than that. Yeah. Um, probably far more interesting plays. Yeah. Um, plays that are readable in terms of language. Yeah. 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 Angels in America, for one. Burn this. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Actually, I really like that. Rent. Let's talk about social justice, which is what a lot of plays are about, right? Like, yep. You can even do some dead-ass, like, Arthur Miller if you must. Exactly. Because at least, like, 20 years from now, when that kid is, like, balding and going through their second divorce, they'll at least be able to link back to, 
Oh, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> I understand the Iceman coming. Yes. Speaking of modern tellings of ancient Greek stories, there is a book called Gods Behaving Badly, and it is about the Roman panoply of, or the Greek panoply of gods in modern London. So they're all living together in like a row house and <laughs> they're losing their powers because nobody believes yeah. in them. And so like Zeus is like a decrepit old like man, like locked upstairs in the attic and he's overseen by Hera. But like Apollo is like out, like trying to nail anything that moves. And it's, it tells this story of Orpheus and Euripides or uh, Europa, whoever um, it kind of like plays on that, like they just bump into each other coincidentally on the street and then she gets hit by a bus and he's got to go into the underworld to get her back. But like, what is the under, it's a really good modern updated telling of these stories. I'll definitely check that out. Highly recommend. Um, there's this, um, show from New Zealand called, um, Johnson's, the amazing Johnson's something like that. And it's this story about how everybody in that family is um, reincarnated Norse gods. Oh! And so the main character is trying to find, is, like, the head Nor god, who I can't remember his name now. Odin. Odin. And he must find his Frick. Okay. So his, like, partner. Yeah. So his his female, like, he must find his true love. He must find... And when they find each other and they get married and consummate, everybody gets all of their powers back. They become, like, full gods again. Hmm. Yeah, that does sound. I mean, it's so it's, much more. It's, it's interesting, but you got to get through like him nailing a lot of people trying to find his frick. But at least it's, it's pretty. It's pretty like like it's pretty frat boyish at times. Mm. But it's funny. Like it but, is like, still the world funny. Didn't need another procedural drama. Yeah. Of like cop doctor lawyer. Like we've we're we're up on those. Like. We've hit our max on those. So this is at least Yeah, unique. and if you watch Whale Rider, um, or I think it's Nativity, the girl, um, Castle Hughes. Sounds familiar. She is in this. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Super funny. What's the name of it? Uh, something Johnson's. The Amazing okay. Johnson's. So. I'll have to look for it. Yeah. It's quite funny. It's got some, it's got its moments, but it's overall quite funny. I think the lesser seasons, it kind of... Well, at a certain point, like yeah. all these shows that start off so much promise. Yeah. But the first, because it starts with he him turning like 18 and then so him coming into his powers and then they finding out what god he is, because you don't know. Oh. And then they find out, shit, he's Odin. And uh, then they have to tell him, oh, by the way, our family is like... <laughs> This uh, this Norse god thing. And it's actually quite funny. The first season's really good. Is it set in New Zealand? Yeah, it's set in New Zealand. So the Norse guards, uh, Lusun, just woke up in New Zealand? Yes. <laughs> there's this whole thing about one of them went to get a staff from this tree of life. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to bring it in. And then it gets stuck at customs. <laughs> and it's going to be like, because... <laughs> they're really protective of what they live yes. through. <laughs> and this piece of wood from Norway is not going to... And then they're like, oh my god, if they treat it, then it's going to like not be magical. So they have to try to go through this whole heist <laughs> of trying to get this staff from the tree of life. I'm down definitely looking yeah. for this show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's a squawky bird sitting yes. just outside our studio. If you hear bird calls, that's what it is. But uh, yeah, that is our show for this week. Um, if you would like more information about the show, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. 
On that website, you will find our merch tab, which takes you to our Redbubble store, so you can buy some officially licensed Rabbit Holes podcast merch. Which I will get on making some better stuff. <sighs> I know. <laughs> I just have a crazy life. Um, also on our website, you have our support tab, which takes you to our patron page. So please consider coming on board as a patron, and you'll get access to a bunch of fun stuff through that. And then if you want to reach out to us via email to let us know about a rabbit hole that you enjoy falling down or that you would like us to fall down for you, our email is rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. We can be found on Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page, Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod, and Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. If you like what we're doing and you'd like to give us a rating or a review, you can find that function on most of the places that you're getting this wonderful, amazing podcast for the low, low price of nothing. So all we ask is if you wouldn't mind uh, pimping us out in the real world and telling people about us, um, that is really appreciated. Yep. Speaking of the real world, we have the Ottawa Podcast Festival coming up on August 24th, 2019 in, of all places, Ottawa. So if you're going to be in the city or have are thinking of where you'd like to go for your summer travels, do consider coming up and joining us. Our, we're working on the lineup right now. Hopefully we'll be announcing it in the next week or so. Uh, and then I'm over halfway through the list. There you go. I'm that's, the last one. That's pretty impressive considering there were th- almost 30 shows in yep. Ottawa who wanted a piece of it. So And you sent it out on Monday. I did. So I'm very proud of you. Tuesday? Tuesday. Yeah, around there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yes, head over to www.ottawapodcastfestival.com for all the information and to buy your tickets and to see the lineup uh, and come out and join us and support local podcasts. So there's only one last thing to do today, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.